NYU Cougar Fight Song, and this is Stacy Julian with episode 45 of Exactly Enough Time. podcast about being present. It's about recognizing the time you have to enjoy the people, places, and things important to you. Did you know? We can choose to be curious and playful, to live with intention, and to create connection. I am a life enthusiast and a believer. I tell stories, and I'm so grateful that you are here. Thank you for listening. words to that fight song, rise and shout, the cougars are out. Guys, I have such an amazing episode to share with you today. My special guest is my brother Cougar. So recently he sent a message out to family uh, sharing that a study that he had worked on with colleagues had been picked up by the New York Times. And as I read through that article, I remembered something that is so true. I have amazing siblings, and it just dawned on me that I should be interviewing them on my podcast. So I'm beginning today with my brother, Cougar. I'm going to let him introduce himself, but he is a fantastic teacher. He is going to share the journey or um, the story of his career, kind of the path that it has taken, the things, a few of the things that he's learned as he has traveled the world, and he is going to impart some fantastic and wise parenting advice. So without further ado, here is my chat with Cougar. Okay, you guys, this is super exciting for me because I have my brother Cougar on the line now with me. Hi, Coog. Hi, how you doing, Stace? Good. I'm going to start today's interview, our chat, with a story. It's one of my favorite stories, and I legit have scrapbooked this. So this is preserved for posterity. But when you were born, Cougar, and our parents, and primarily our dad, picked your name, I think a lot of people thought, that's the coolest name you could ever get, give a kid, right? But there were some people who were concerned, and, and this is kind of a funny thing about people, you know, sometimes concerned people sort of... Uh, Overstepped their bounds is how I would put it nicely. <laughs> but they, but they got, uh, they reached out to mom and dad, and uh, and I think there was more than one. And they said, you know, you know, why why would you do that to a to a little person, you know, particular boy? Why would you give him a name like that? I believe, as it has been communicated to me, that there was one person who predicted that at some point in time you would probably want to change your name. And so the story I've been told is, I'm guessing you were nine or 10, you and dad had maybe been fishing or hiking or something. You were driving home from our grandmother's house. You were sitting in the front seat of a pickup and you turned to dad and you said, dad, he said, yeah, I think I want to change my name. That's what I said. I want to change my name. <laughs> and, and I imagine he probably had just a moment of like, oh, you know, here it is. They predicted this. So he said, okay, son, what would you like your name to be? And do you remember what you said? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I said, I want to be Cougar Johnson or Cougar Jackson. 
<laughs> and my rationale is there are no famous athletes with the last name of Hall. Hall. Yeah. <laughs> and so then, you know, there was a wash of relief, you know? And, you and I think, yeah. And dad said, I don't think we can, you know, I think he says, like, it's difficult to change your first name, but it's really difficult to change your surname. So then you said, okay, then I'm Cougar Hall. Yep. Pretty cool, huh? <laughs> <laughs> That's a great story. And so now I'm going to give you a chance to tell a story about me. Oh, I'd love to. Keep it clean. Keep it nice. <laughs> I'd, I'd love to. You actually promised. Uh, so this story is, I'm not going back as far as you went. I'm just going back, I think, 12 years ago. And I think it was 12 years ago, November, you made me promise I would never retell this. So Uh not a lot you can do about this because we're recording. (laughs) But um, At the time, I was a high school teacher and I taught at an alternative school. It was a very small school. Um, Stacy, I think there were 14 faculty members and maybe another 10 or 12 kind of staff, counselor, secretaries, administration folks. Okay. And I had been there for four years. And... Every year in November, right about this time, the principal would have a faculty meeting and he would lay into us on, you know, these students come from such humble backgrounds. They have so very little that I need you as a faculty to be generous and contribute to this year's sub for Santa. And I started to resent it and I knew it was coming. And he laid into us on how we need to all contribute and we need to change the lives of, you know, one or two of the families uh, that we serve. And I remember I went back to my classroom and taught throughout the day and just frustrated. Um, And I'm going to get emotional. I apologize. Like, you know, I don't I just don't make any money. Mm -hmm. And I but I know that I've been blessed and I, I really do want to give. And I'm, I'm probably going to give 15 or $20. I'm tr- so I'm spending the afternoon trying to decide if I'm going to go 15 or 20. <laughs> and then I realize I'm like, you know, there's, there's 14 other people, maybe 14 or 15 other people in the school that are going to donate. So seriously, what are we going to come up with? Is it going to be $250 this year or $300? I was, I was just frustrated. <laughs> so we got an announcement. So school was over, but you know, teachers stay there for another half an hour so. And so we got the announcement and it said, make sure that you, you write your check for Suffer Santa and leave it with Angela, the secretary, as you, as you head out. And um, just right then I had this thought, I'm like, you know, I don't make a lot of money, but I bet I could call some people who do. <laughs> and I called each of my siblings and now you're going to kill me for telling the story, but you were the first one I called. And it was about a 30 second phone call. And you said, put me down for X number of dollars. And <laughs> I picked up the phone again and I called my brother and then I called my two younger sisters and I called my parents. And uh, all of those phone calls, halls don't talk long on the phone. <laughs> True. All of those phone calls took about two or three minutes. And then I was concerned because I had just had family members pledge more money than I had in my bank account. <laughs> <laughs> but I have to go write a check. <laughs> And so uh, I, I wrote the check and it was for many, many, many times more than the faculty had put together in the previous year. Hmm. And I remember I, I wrote the check and I handed it to Angela and she just started to cry. Oh. And uh, I just said, please don't, <laughs> please don't cash this check until like next week, please. <laughs> and then, by that time, another secretary had come over and they're both crying. And they thought it was me. I'm like, 
no, 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 no. Only $40 of that is mine. <laughs> but I thought, so I thought of that story this morning as I was, I was out for a run. And I thought, you know, this, this week for my family really kicks off the holiday season. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I'll, I'll just, I'll just share something. Um, I'm in a much better financial situation now right. as a recovering high school teacher of 11 years. Uh, <laughs> during that time, I, I actually, I never felt like I was, you know, poor, but I always mm-hmm. thought, I just, I hope someday I have more money, not so I can mm-hmm. buy more stuff, but I just, I hope someday I can just be generous. Right. And I think that's, that's why I share that story. Cause you've always been an example of generosity, whether you had a lot or a little, uh, you gave of your time, uh, you, mm-hmm. you gave a listening ear, uh, and you've certainly given money and, and very thoughtful gifts, uh, of time and service. And, uh, just recently as I've had just, just a little extra spending money, I, um, uh, my family, we decided we would pray for opportunities to be generous. Mm-hmm. I'll just say that's kind of a dangerous thing to pray for because, right. um, almost every day for the next two or three weeks, almost every day, there was an opportunity for me to be generous. And, wow. and sometimes, like I say, sometimes with time and sometimes with, with finances, um, what a cool thing. So that's, and that's what this time of year is about, man. You know, when we yeah. get things off from November through December, it's just yeah. such a reminder. So anyway, that's my story about you. Not embarrassing other than you told me when we were on the phone, you said, if you ever tell anyone. <laughs> I will deny it. You didn't, you didn't mention physical harm or, or torture or anything. But, <laughs> oh, as if I could physically I I harm you. vague enough that you feel like so, What a cool um, story. That's, that's who you've always you. me, so. Good stuff. Well, that is that is very kind, and and you're right. I think I think honestly, our father probably, um, not that he ever sat us down and talked about generosity, but I watched him do the same thing, and he always did it in a very quiet way. Yeah. So it's that you know anonymity is that the right word? Yeah. That's always been important to me, and certainly I'm very good about sharing my husband's money. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, there's probably something more to it as well because I was thinking this morning about sharing that story, and I thought, you know, I had been frustrated all day long. Um, Mm -hmm. on that particular day. And I think that's a reminder to me and maybe to someone else when, when we're frustrated, there's always another way to respond that probably greater, you know, more closely aligns with who we want to be and who we're trying to become. And so that was an aha moment for me, just realizing there there's, there's always another option for me. Uh, Mm -hmm. Cool stuff. Yeah, that's well. I can't think of a better way to start this off, and okay. I do. And this time of year, it is. It's it's an opportunity for generosity, and and I think there's people that would love to be reached out to, kind of like you did, and then and then together. That's that's what the holidays are about, you know. Yeah. So for sure. awesome. Oh my gosh. Okay, so this is honestly how I feel about my siblings, and this is the reason that I reached out to you is. Uh, you know, you had a recent, and we'll talk about it in just a minute, but you had something cool kind of happen that's related to your career. And as I thought about that, I thought, oh my goodness, the, the most interesting people, some of the most interesting people I know are in my family. They are my siblings. Why have I not interviewed my brothers and sisters before? <laughs> Duh. So I, I sent you a text. I'm like, I don't even know if you know I have a podcast, but would you be on my podcast? And and you said, yeah. So oh, every, that's what that's what today is about. So every awesome. time I see Dad, he says, "Are you listening to Stacy's podcast?" <laughs> oh. Well, a couple of weeks ago, Dad sent me a message, and he goes, "I'm glad to know that you have also inherited my podcasting talents." Yeah. <laughs> 
So that's our dad. He's hilarious. So I want you just for a minute. Um, you have a really, I think you have a really interesting job. You are currently a professor at Brigham Young University. And for those people who don't know, this is the, the kind of the cool thing. The mascot at BYU happens to be a cougar. So you are legitimately a man named Cougar, right? That's right. Working and teaching at BYU where the mascot is a cougar. The only reason they hired me. The only reason. <laughs> I think that's untrue. But I do believe that when you were there, you were there with our brother Theron and his wife, Kristen. And Kristen, as I remember, it worked for for the newspaper. And she wrote a little article about you. Oh, she did. I think I still yeah. have it somewhere in a scrapbook. That would make you very happy. But I think I still have yes. it somewhere. And I think the best line was I told her that I encouraged all co-eds to be kind to animals and kiss a cougar. And <laughs> I had no, I, I'm like, there's no way they're going to put that in there. That's just silly. And that was like, that was like the first paragraph. That was like the, yeah, so, the opening line or something. It didn't help my dating life. At the time, you did not know. You probably had zero idea that you would return someday as a professor. Right. So tell us, tell us a little bit about what department do you work for? What is it exactly that you do? And, and just, just a quick overview of how you got to where you are today. Yeah, of course. That's awesome. So I, I, like I said earlier, I'm a recovering high school teacher. So I taught high school for 11 years and I taught health and physical education and did driver education before and after school. So right now, everyone should be thinking of that guy at their high school. And, That's right. And you have a picture of me if you do that. So that was me. And I absolutely loved my job. Mm -hmm. um, I remember when I went into teaching, I, th I thought to myself, if this doesn't work, then I'm going to go to law school. And they're going to, I mean, they're going to want some guy who comes in and wants to do educational law. I'm sure they don't have a lot of those folks is what I thought. And, and the mm -hmm. very, my very first day of teaching, the first period bell rang, class was over, second period's filing in. And I knew right then that I loved teaching. <laughs> I'll get emotional again, sorry. I just knew that I, I, this, I've, I've never done drugs, but I'm certain this is what like because <laughs> I think, I think my pleasure center was just overcome with dopamine. I just, this is, I found my calling and I'm so lucky. Now yeah. I have to find a way to do this and pay bills. Yeah. And, uh, uh, so yeah, I, the school that I taught at was only about eight miles away from the Brigham Young University campus in Provo. They hired okay. me. So essentially I student taught and they offered me a job and I had no, okay. I had no intention of staying in Utah, both Hillary, uh, and I wanted to go back closer to home. She's from Northern California. I'm from Seattle. Um, right. but they offered me a job. And so I'm like, well, I, I think we say yes. And then we keep looking. <laughs> and, uh, so I, I stayed a second year and I stayed a third year and then BYU yeah. called and they said, we want to send you a student teacher. And I said, Oh, sure. I'd love to do that. So I had a student teacher and the student teacher was amazing. And I thought this is actually a lot of fun. I'm not just teaching high school kids. I'm teaching someone else how to teach, which is a right. really hard thing to do because so much of teaching is just sharing our selfhood with our students in the service of learning. It's, it's, it's a really hard thing to do to teach someone to be themselves and to share that. Right. But, but I found it incredibly challenging and then they, and, and yet rewarding. And then they sent me another one the next year and then another one the next year. And I was like, this is, this is kind of cool. Um, and then the university mentor who would come out and check on the student teacher every other week, he said, I'm going to retire in about eight years. You need to be ready to do this. 
I'm like, huh. no, no way, man. I just, <laughs> I just want to teach high school and maybe coach football. I'm good. I'm good to do this for 30 years. Right. And then he came back the next year and he said, how's grad school? And I said, you're smoking something. I'm not going to grad school, man. <laughs> and he said, what are you doing? What are you doing Thursday after school? And I said, teach and drive red. And he said, well, I'm, I'll be back Thursday. So Thursday shows up and he brings the department chair from, from the department of health science at BYU. Okay. And the department chair says, we need you to be ready to join the faculty in eight years. You, <gasps> you've got to do this. And I said, you've got to be kidding. I barely made it through my undergrad. <laughs> and he said, and here's what I'm going to do. He said, I'm going to actually hire you to come teach an evening class on campus. And I'm going to pay you extra money. And you're going to use huh. extra money to pay your tuition for grad school. Yeah. And I'm like, uh, okay, yeah, sure. <laughs> So that's what happened. And so I, I taught evening classes at BYU. And then I, I drove up to Salt Lake and attended the University of Utah. And I did that for nine years. Yeah. And uh, when I was done, they hired me. I, I couldn't believe it worked out. It was I'm like, this isn't going to work out. And then I'm just going to be a high school teacher with a PhD. And that's okay, too. <laughs> they hired me. So I am. And we, we've since changed our name from the Department of Health Science to the Department of Public Health. And I have okay. I have 21 incredible faculty members, colleagues. Wow. Yeah. They all do public health and I'm the only one that does school health education. So I train, I train junior high and high school health teachers. And yet, because I have awesome colleagues, they've pulled me into many of their public health projects. Uh, in fact, I now teach the introduction to public health course each semester, which has about 150 students. So I'm teaching yeah. the largest public health course and I'm the only one who's not public health. And my department, That's hilarious. <laughs> my department chair said, you know what? You, you stink and love to teach, man. So you just got to get in there and do your thing. I'm like, okay. <laughs> no, I don't know what I'm talking about, though. He's like, it's okay. Let's go for it. Yeah. So that's Well, you are, a, you are a gifted teacher. You are a fabulous storyteller. Oh, you're kind. Um, no, it's true. It's absolutely true. And I love listening to you almost more than anyone I know. So oh, okay. I just, I totally revel in the opportunity to, to go to dinner whenever, you know, we don't have to see each other a ton, but when we're together, I, I just, I try to set up a dinner of some kind so that we can hear you tell us about your latest adventure. Oh, you're just, well, I've got a gift. I've had many adventures because, uh, over the last five or six years, uh, a couple things have happened. I have a tremendous colleague who does global health, international health. Yeah. And I think he just likes to bring me along for comic relief. I'm someone to talk to <laughs> on a 15 hour flight, you know, and, and if I'm a little jet lagged, I'm even goofier. So he's, he's really kind of just brought me along and it's been great. And then we've also, the last four years, we've done a study abroad program in Western. Yeah. And so I've had some great traveling experiences. And I'm, so tell me about that because I, I think that's so fascinating. And this is kind of just a fun side. Yeah. I never thought that I would travel. It wasn't, I mean, I, not that I didn't like it, but I just never really pictured myself doing it. And I've had incredible opportunities to travel because I loved a scrapbook. Yeah. And now I watch you and you're doing so much more travel than I ever did. And I think it's just interesting how those things kind of fall into our, into our laps sometimes, but I am particularly interested in, tell us the background of the study abroad program. I believe you submitted the proposal. So what's the, what's the gist behind that? Just tell us that you story. Bet. Who do you take I would, on I would, study abroad? You bet. Study abroad is such a cool thing. And we have taken 40 students each summer. Uh, wow. The purpose, and if, and just to give you an overview of public health, we're right. all, we're almost all familiar with, um, with healthcare, 
with the medicine, medical treatment side. So, um, and boy, we have a bunch of physicians in the family and they are incredible mm-hmm. at what they do. They deal with patients, they help people and they treat them. They help relieve pain. Uh, they can perform surgeries. They can administer life-saving drugs. And we, we so need that. Public health is just the opposite of all those things. Rather than work with patients, we work with populations. And rather than mm-hmm. deal in treatment, we work in prevention. And uh, it's, it's, a very, it's a very cost-effective way to deal with the ailments, the, which are primarily lifestyle diseases that we deal with in, in Western cultures. And in Europe, I like to think Europe is probably 10 to 15 years ahead of us on many things. Uh, mm-hmm. everything from music to fashion, but also to public health. And in Europe, in many, in many cities, not all cities, but in many cities, they have built an environment that is really conducive to an active lifestyle. It's just as easy to walk to work or to cycle to work or to take public transportation. It's just as easy to stop by a local market um, with fresh foods and, you know, produce, uh, mm-hmm. as it is to go to Costco, as it is to get in your own car and drive yourself to work and back and forth. So, so what they've done is they've made in, in many aspects, they've made the healthy choice, the easy choice. And that's what we're trying to do in public health. Um, yeah. so, so we decided rather than use the historical, the traditional model, which has always been to take public health students to the developing world and to try to help disadvantaged resource, you know, resource poor populations to help them with uh-huh. hand washing and talk about exclusive breastfeeding, all things that are really, really important, but rather than take our students to those locations and drop some knowledge and teach some skills on those folks, what if we humbled ourselves a little bit and recognized that while we're an amazing country with um, and have amazing achievements, we lag uh-huh. behind. We absolutely lag behind on many health indicators. So why don't we go to places where they're doing it better than us? And let's just let, let's just learn. Let's just soak it up. So that's yeah. what we've done. And the university liked the proposal. And um, yeah, so it's it's been life changing for both. Uh, myself and my family, but also for the students, they come home and they say, I will never drive a quarter mile to the grocery store. And I will never drive two blocks to go to church. I will never do that again. That is just foolishness. I will find more ways to be active. Um, so it's, it's been tons of fun. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. That's awesome. And I think travel for me, uh, I'm, I'm a homebody. If I have a full, you know, 72 hour stretch where I don't have to leave my house, that is just glorious. Oh my heavens. I love that. Right. But, right. But it's been good to be pushed and to, to observe how other people live, um, for many different reasons. One, it's, it's caused me to change a lot of the things that I do, but it's also just caused me to recognize that, I think I think one percent of the world's population live the way I do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am so tremendously privileged, and uh, mm-hmm. so man, for, I mean, for so many reasons, travel is a good thing for us when we have the opportunity. I think. Yeah, absolutely, totally changes your perspective. So from there, take me to because now you've talked about you know taking taking those students to Europe. Um, and letting them learn a bit more how to how to be more active and make healthier choices. You are, however, also involved in some projects that do 
um, that do serve, a, you know, an underserved population, yeah. right? So talk to me about that real quick. Yeah, those are some of our global health projects. Uh, and my colleague's name is Dr. Crookston. And Dr. Crookston, uh, he has a very good relationship with several large nonprofits. And nonprofits, they, re- you know, they rely upon uh, donations, but also they um, often receive very large government grants. But they, right. they also rely on consulting uh, with people like Dr. Christian, who he knows his field. He's very good at uh, monitoring and evaluation and assessment of programs, making sure that what we were hoping was going to happen has happened. And if it didn't, right. if it didn't, what we need to change next time. And uh, so I've had the opportunity to travel with Dr. Crookston uh, to East Africa. We've been to Kenya a couple times and Tanzania. Those projects have been largely looking at maternal health and preventing stunting, childhood stunting. Um, it's, right. it's, it's an enormous issue. The first thousand days of life. Uh, so uh, essentially from conception through about the second birthday of a child, th- that is the critical time period where if, if the proper nutrition is not available, there are cognitive delays mm-hmm. that really, um, we never really rebound from. And so right. it's so important to get those those children the proper nutrition at, at that early stage. So we've looked at some of those projects. Right. We also did a very large HIV prevention project in the slums, what we call informal settlements, but it's a slum, uh, right huh. in Nairobi. Hard to believe there's millions of people living on a piece of property, um, maybe, maybe four or six city blocks, um, millions wow. of people, blue tarp. Pallets, no security, uh, no. Just when when you wake up and your goal for that day is to find something to eat. Um, So those have been awesome experiences. I've I've loved traveling to South America. We've worked with a nonprofit in South America. So to travel to uh, you know to Paraguay and to Peru and Ecuador and Central America, Guatemala. Mm -hmm. uh, Had a trip to Mongolia that was life changing. The Mongolian people are absolutely just, they're beautiful and they're resilient. Uh, So man, so many incredible experiences. Um, I don't, do you want me to share a story? I mean, no, absolutely. Do it. I want to hear. I'll share one person, one person who's changed my life. And that was about two years ago. We were in Tanzania and Tanzania is on the east, on the east coast of Africa. So if you can envision, we've got Kenya just above and, uh, Okay. And, and you've got all the national parks you've heard of. You've heard of Kilimanjaro, uh, and you've yeah. and you've had friends who've gone on safaris. Much of that happens right there. Um, okay. Uh, but there's an enormous lake. It's called Lake Victoria. It's the size of an ocean. It's like one of the Great Lakes. So we were on we okay. were on the west side of Lake Victoria, right next to Rwanda. Um, so you know, just to kind of give you kind of a frame of reference. And we were working with a sister named Sister Margaret. She's a Catholic nun. Uh, she's okay. 65 years old, and she became a nun at age 15. This woman has wow. she has dedicated her life to the ministry and to easing uh, the pain and suffering of those around her. She's just she is an right. angel. Um, and we went from village to village and we were, we were interviewing women and asking about what they were feeding their kids and how they were overcoming their challenges. Um, and at, at almost every village we went to, the women would come out and they would sing and then they would do a dance for us. 
And then there were hugs all around and then we would have some food and everywhere we went, it was just joy. You know, we sing and dance for the holidays and for birthdays, but not on a Wednesday afternoon. Where we went, it was song and dance and the contrast between the dark skin and the beautiful white smiles. It was just, it's just, man, it's just seared on my brain. Just like just pure joy. And at one point I said to Sister Margaret, I said, Sister Margaret, where I live, uh, we're dealing with epic proportions of anxiety and depression, even in my own, even in my own family, Sister Margaret. We have an epidemic right now of teen suicide. And she said, Cougar, (laughs) (laughs) it's very, very difficult to be happy when you have so much. <laughs> and I, I laughed and I cried inside. I just thought yeah. there's so much truth to that. That I think yeah. it's, it's inside of us. It's on our DNA to struggle. Interesting. You know, the burdens that we feel, they give us traction. Mm-hmm. That gives us momentum. And we are so, we are yeah. so much more resilient as human mm-hmm. beings. When we're, yeah, when, we have an innate desire to progress and to improve and to change. And so when you, when, yeah, when you lack those opportunities that I think that's so fascinating. That crazy? Just, it's, yeah, yeah, it's crazy. True. Just, it's interesting. Just this weekend, I was thinking about my family and uh, I, I know there's so many ways I can improve as a dad. I mean, gosh, it's a big list, yeah. but I was thinking, you know, my, my kids, we actually never argue. Uh, there, there's never contention. And I think to my home growing up, and when did we argue? It was because Stacy was in the bathroom, and I need to get ready for school. Because we had one and my bathroom. My brother's punching me. He's like, I'm next. And I'm like, no, I'm next. I'm going to pee my pants. He's like, no. And so we argued over those things. And then we would, after yeah. school, I'd want to watch TV. And there's one, there's yeah. one TV and there's four stations. And it's in the same right. room as a piano that Stacy plays and drums that my brother Stephen plays. <laughs> So we argue, right? We argue about what we're going to watch and who gets to use the bathroom and for how long. Well, my kids, all of my kids have their own bathroom. My kids all watch their own shows on their own phone or their Mm -hmm. own device. There's never a friction point. And I actually Mm -hmm. think I need to create more friction points because I'm afraid Mm -hmm. what's going to happen is my kids have never dealt with just those. I mean, we all deal with adversity, but they don't deal with those minor points of irritation and they haven't learned to communicate those things to communicate or negotiate. Think of the negotiation that went on. Yeah, in our home. We learned how to problem yeah. solve. We learned patience. Yeah. And I just think yeah. there, there's so much there. So I contrast that with what sister Margaret's saying. And I think, you know, there's, there's probably blessings to be found in the struggle. And just in some of those that, that my kids are shielded from that I'm shielded from, heck, I don't care what they're watching. I'm watching yeah. my show in my room. And so I don't know, just come, right. you know, some random musings, but I think there's so much there. I think life is supposed to be trying and challenging and rather than complain and feel helpless and feel like a victim, mm-hmm. I should recognize those as awesome opportunities to stretch, to grow, to be better. So I'm, um- 
I'm yeah. curious with that realization, do you have any ideas? <laughs> I, I have a lot of moms, yeah. you know, with children, you know, that span a wide, you know, age range. Do you have any ideas for how you can create a little bit more intentional friction yeah. in your home? Cause that's, I wish I were, you know, I, I wish know. I were smarter. Um, you know, yeah. I, but I do think that the realization alone is, is important. Sure. You know what I mean? So. Well, let me just share one thing. I think I can be slower to rescuing my children. I, I think yeah. maybe the most important thing I can say as a dad is I'm sure you're frustrated. What will you, what yeah. will you do different next time? Uh, I'm, I'm hearing your frustration. I'm feeling your frustration. It feels unfair to me. And yet I'm wondering, um, what do you think should be done and what are you willing to do about it? I think, I, I think, I, I mean, my, my knee jerk reaction is to make everything okay. And I think sometimes those protective rationales might be cheating my kids from a few opportunities to, mm-hmm. to grow and, and to stretch. And, and I don't, I'm not advocating for abuse or neglect and not in any stretch, but I think just be, be slower to rescue and to make everything okay. Let hold your right. tongue and let them work a few things out and then discuss after how it went and what they think they'll do different next time. I think that might be a good way to go for me at least. So, wow. Know, I love my that. poor kids. I love that. So now I'm trying yeah. to decide because I, I, there was actually something I wanted you to share. And I think this is just going to be a little bit longer okay. episode because no, you're too yeah, interesting to me. So, so yeah, our last name is Hall. And for many, many years now, every other, is it every other summer? Every other summer we have, <laughs> I think I could remember, we have a hall reunion. The funny thing is we've, we've kind of have, we have this little tradition of using our last name uh, to come up with a theme or just something to title almost our reunion with. And uh, we take turns being in charge. I, and right now I'm drawing a blank. I can't think of any of the, oh, well, okay. I did a reunion called the long yeah. hall. Right. And it focused on our pioneer heritage and how long we've been halls together. So you did the most recent reunion. It was just this last summer. You called it the Hall Academy and it was actually hosted in this coolest place. It was an it's an old school that this young couple has bought. They're renovating it and for the purpose of hosting family events. So that was kind of cool. But my favorite part, my favorite, favorite part of the reunion was um, the study hall which we met morning. Did we meet in the evenings too? Yeah. At least once a day. Yeah. And you invited each of the siblings to come prepared to share a little bit about their career path and maybe how they have in their own life made decisions around learning and not just academic learning, but also spiritual learning. You drew from a scripture that encourages, encourages us to learn by study and also learn by faith. So there was an opportunity for each of us to talk about, again, like a career path type learning and then more of a, uh, a spiritual faith-based learning. Um, but you shared something, uh, and I and I, it's funny because when I texted you, I said, Cougar, come on and talk to us about emotional intelligence. And you're like, huh? <laughs> Which obviously you've, you've done some work and some study because I called it the wrong thing. What you actually shared with us was this concept of what is called locus of control. Yeah. And I thought it was so fascinating. So do you, can you can you summarize kind of that message? Because I've thought back on it so often since uh, since you shared it at the reunion. 
You bet. I would love to. I would love to. So locus of control is really, it's the extent to which we believe that our own actions will be effective enough to control or to master or even to navigate our environment. And when I say environment, it's really the challenges that we face in life. So do I feel, do I feel empowered that I have the tools in my tool belt to do what I need to do each day? That's just the opposite of learned helplessness of feeling like it doesn't matter what I do. And, you know, one of the analogies that I've created before as I've taught this in one of my classes is imagine if you're a ship on the sea and the wind and the waves are just tossing this little vessel about, you know, here and there, and you have no control. The waves are enormous. The swells are almost overcoming you. And what are you going to do? And so there's this feeling of just throwing your arms up and saying, what the heck? I, there, there's nothing I can do. And uh-huh. there are times when we feel like that in our lives. Like it doesn't matter what I do. Sometimes parenting leaves us with a feeling of learned helplessness. There's no doubt about that. Right, right. <laughs> That's just the opposite of locus of control. Locus of control would say the wind is blowing and beating against me and the waves are trashing and overcoming. You know, it's just, it's incredible. And yet, I am the one who actually can control the sails. And sometimes I can use that adversity in a positive way. And I, and I still have my hand on the rudder and I'm, I'm still in charge of this thing. Um, so that's this idea of locus of control. And I think at the reunion, I shared a study which has been replicated with about every type of study animal from, you know, from mice to dogs to chimpanzees. And and probably most people, even if they don't remember, most people were probably introduced to this study in like a introduction to psychology course, their first Uh year of college. But if you can imagine, we have three groups of, uh, let's use mice. We have, we have three groups of mice and the first group they're in their cage and a bell rings. And about five seconds later, they get a big old electrical shock. Ooh, and there's nothing yeah. they can do. And periodically this bell rings and they just know it's coming and they're going to get shocked. And it's very, very unpleasant. The next cage over, same thing. Bell, about five seconds later, shock. Very unpleasant. But about the second or third trial or round of that experiment, the mice mm-hmm. in the second cage, they recognize, oh, look, here's the little treadmill, the little running wheel for mice. If when you hear the bell, you hop on the on the wheel and you run, there's no uh-huh. shock. There's no uh-huh. shock. So every time the bell rings, they're like, oh, let's get on. <laughs> it only takes a couple trials. They all get on the wheel and they start running like crazy. And no shock. Hop off. Next time. the Anyway, and this goes on and on indefinitely. We've uh-huh. done the same thing with dogs. And in, instead of a treadmill, they'll, they'll hit their nose against a bar and that will prevent the shock. So what right. we have is we have this challenge and yet they've learned that they can control the outcome by, huh. by doing something. And it doesn't matter what it is. If there's something for them, they will find it and they will do it to control their environment. It's a great yeah. experiment of locus of control. Well, in this study with the mice, we have a third cage and these mice, they're just hanging out. There's, there's no bell, there's no shock, there's no treadmill. They're just hanging tough. Okay. Then a month later, we inject all of them with, with um, poison, with a carcinogen that's going to cause cancer. Okay. It turns out that that middle group of mice who had a bell, who had a shock, but learned to navigate their environment by getting on the treadmill and prevent the negative outcome, 
they were the ones who resisted, rejected the cancer cells. Uh, in this particular study, about 72% of the time. Now, those that learned that there was nothing they could do in that very first group, they rejected the cancer about 27% of the time. To, okay. to be helpless is the absolute worst place. The control group, that third group I told you about, sorry, yeah. about half the time. So the worst place for us to be is helpless, is right. feeling like there's nothing we can do. There's always something we can do to improve our outcome. Now, there's all sorts of injustice in the world. There's things that are completely unfair. And all of us should stand up and be a voice for those who don't have a voice. And better yet, give them their voice. We should speak out against unfairness and unkindness and inequality. And yet, for people who are in that situation, the last thing they want to do is roll over. They want to keep, keep looking. Where's that treadmill? Where's that proverbial treadmill or bar that they can, that they can learn to manage those difficulties and lessen uh, that shock. So I think that's really cool that this idea of locus of control, um, I'm, I'm rambling way too much. There's a really cool story in one of the textbooks I use, and it's, a, it's about a prisoner of war uh, during, I think, the first desert storm. And uh, so he's being held hostage. He's being treated very poorly, and he's, huh. uh, he has almost no food. I think they give him a little, like a half a piece of bread every day. He decides to save a portion of that bread every day, and he spends most of his day organizing his cell, cleaning, dusting. Uh, and when people come by, it's typically guards who come by and treat him unkindly. He always says to them, hey, it's nice to see you. Do you have a moment to come in and visit? Can I offer you some bread? <laughs> Can you really? Imagine, right? So here's yeah. – Here's an individual who has almost no control over his circumstance, but he's found the one thing he can do to make him feel powerful and to, and to maybe establish even a little semblance of normalcy and humanity. I think, um, and, I'm, and I'm totally off topic, but I went to this, this past week I was in D.C. and I was yeah. able to go to the Holocaust Museum. Oh. And, uh, and I've actually been to some prison camps in Germany, uh, some concentration mm-hmm. camps. It's the most sobering experience I think a human can have, just, just to, to be witness to sheer evil. And yeah. about halfway through uh, the Holocaust Museum, I said to my colleague, I said, humans suck. Mm-hmm. I, was, I was pretty emotional, too. I said, we suck. And uh, he had great wisdom. He said, and they're also amazing. Yeah. He said, think about those people who uh, did risk their entire lives to save a family, to save an individual. And think of mm-hmm. the incredible men and women who stormed beaches and jumped out of helicopters and airplanes. Mm-hmm. He said, humans are amazing. <laughs> like, that's true, too. <laughs> we saw that they were amazing. And, um, I don't know. I mean, I'm sorry to get emotional. Those are those are things that tear at your heart, just tug at your heart. But we're so much stronger and so much more resilient than we know. And we forget right. that because of the ease of the way and how comfortable our lives are. There's so much goodness and strength inside of us. I'm sorry about being, yeah. I apologize. No, and it's interesting because I'm, you know, and I don't, and I don't know because yeah. you're the one talking, doing most of the talking, you might feel like you're rambling, but you're not. There is an absolute thread that has run through our entire conversation. I mean, going from, from what we can do for our kids, you know what I mean? Who yeah. are suffering 
anxiety, depression, all of these things, it's creating a greater sense of, you know, control, right? It's locus of control is, is the answer. And, and looking at those, look at, yeah, looking at the war and the deprivation and the evil that's been caused in every one of those situations. And, and Mr. Rogers is one of my favorites. Okay. <laughs> and there happens to be a movie coming out very, very soon yes. about Mr. Rogers, but, but his, his line that I always think of is he says, when you're in the midst of tragedy, regardless of how it's caused, you look for the helpers. There will always be helpers. And so the helpers are clearly the people who have a sense of, of the control or at least um, the contribution, right? That they can create yes. in, in a situation. So. Yes. Oh, man, bro. I just love you. Oh, <laughs> you are, I don't know if anyone else so is going to want to listen to me. It's great that you and I like to talk. No one else is going to find this interesting, I'm afraid. <laughs> If nothing else, if nothing else, this is recorded for posterity. Yeah, so, but, but I think I'm pretty sure that there's some people that are going to find value in 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 what you've shared oh. today. So, so want to thank you so very much for your time. Um, so here's the deal: at the end of my podcast, hope you're ready. Yes. Uh, it's called People, Places, Things, and so I want you to just tell me uh, about a person, a place, or a thing that right now today has your focus. Oh, I'll I'll go with thing. And okay. an intangible thing. I think we have a moment. I think we have a moment right now. I think our country is incredibly polarized. I, mm-hmm. uh, in, in public health, we're polarized. Uh, in politics, we're polarized. Sometimes in marriages, we're polarized. Um, and I, th- I think we have a moment. I think every time when we're stretched and the pendulum has swung so far one direction, I think we have a moment that uh, the humanity, which doesn't always suck, that humanity that can mm-hmm. rise up. And I think we can be we can be better to each other and our families. I can be better to my wife. I can be better to my children. And I can be better to my neighbors. I can be better to my colleagues. And I think yeah. I think I think we have a moment um, to 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 show ourselves and to show those that we love that um, we're we're capable of so much more. And yeah. I'm not just trying to be political. I just feel like we've, we've been in this, in this tug of war for a while now, it feels. And I feel like we're, we're yeah. going to have a moment where people like Stacy and Cougar, we can continue to rise up and be positive and to be kind and to, and to find ways to improve ourselves and to love better yeah. and to love more completely. And I mean, maybe I'm just smoking too much stuff and I'm too much of a hippie, but I, I feel like we're going to have a moment shortly and I'm excited for that. Yeah. And I hope that I, I hope that I respond well in that moment. I do too. I'm on board. I want to be the the person yeah. that's there involved in that. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, you're awesome, Stace. Love you, Mucho. Okay, one more. One more. You're not done yet. <laughs> I need you to finish the sentence. I Cougar have exactly enough time for uh, for the next decision for for the next opportunity, uh, the next opportunity to 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 be better and and. Well, let me just say, I, I think we feel panicked. I think we feel rushed. I think we feel like we have to make decisions right away. And, and that's our fast paced rat race, you know, f- friendly way of living. There are very few emergencies in my life. There have been almost none. I feel like it's an emergency, but if I back up and take a look, I have more time than I thought to talk to my people and to make a better decision. So uh, we have just enough time to make the next decision, uh, the right decision. I love it. 
Thank you. You are profound. And I appreciate so much this time together. Thanks. Ugh, so good, right? I told you. So today's episode was a little bit longer than normal. I hope you agree with me that it was worth your time. I loved every minute of my conversation with my brother, and I am going to put several links in the show notes at stacyjulian.com on the podcast page. So beginning with the link to his article that inspired me to reach out to him as well as other informational links. And I'm also going to include a link to the Bountiful Children's Foundation. This is one of the organizations that Cougar and his colleagues have worked with as they have traveled uh, to underserved populations and conducted studies and tried to help further the work of improving nutrition um, uh, for, for mothers and for young children. It's very worthy of your attention if you're looking for an opportunity to contribute during this holiday season. I think one of my takeaways, you guys, is just that so much of what we celebrate during the holidays is centered in and around our families. So yes, I know we have lists a mile long. Don't forget to slow down and take the time to talk to the people you love and to listen. We have so many rich experiences that we can share with one another. That is how we create connection. Connection is one of the best gifts you can give someone you love. Come back next week. I'll be here with another episode of Exactly Enough Time. <laughs>